Hello and welcome to the Pastor's Bible Class at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Um, as we are continuing to do so during the time of restrictions because of the um, COVID pandemic, I am pre-recording, but hopefully you're listening to this on KFUO 8.50 a.m. or on their website, their podcast, um, any one of those different means. But of course, we wish, as, as, as we have for many weeks and many months, that we could be in person, but at least we are still blessed by the opportunity to study God's Word together, albeit it's different forms, but still, today we will get into God's Word and read the Scripture and hopefully um, just continue to be blessed by God's Word. So, again, this is Pastor Kevin Thompson. I'm privileged to be here, but before we get any much any further into this, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day that, um, Lord, you grant us a new day each and every day to wake us up to to serve you, to give you glory, and to give you honor in all that we say and do and think. And Lord, now as gather together to study your word, again, still separated physically, Lord, we are together um, in spirit, together as your church, the communion of saints around the entire world, especially as we know that even now, more than ever, um, studying the word together, we get to be united with our brothers and sisters in Christ all across the state, the country, and even the world. So, Lord, may you bless our time in your word. May you strengthen me as I seek to lead your people in the study of your word. And may all of us, Lord, grow in faith towards you as we hear and consider your word for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, as is the custom for this Bible class from St. Paul's in De Pere, we will be looking at the lectionary readings um, that are assigned for the coming week. So this weekend, we're looking at the lectionary readings that will be used for Sunday, October 4th. And Sunday, October 4th, we will be looking at Isaiah chapter 5, Philippians chapter 3, and Matthew chapter 21. So as typically, just going to dive in, get into it, um, and try to spend a little bit of time in each one of these readings. Of course, there's also a psalm that's ascribed each week by the lectionary as well, Psalm 80. I don't really intend to get into that too much. Obviously, the Psalms are still important, but just due to time, I really want to dive into the other three readings. So, let's begin with the Old Testament reading that is assigned for Sunday, October 4, Isaiah chapter 5, and it's verse 1 through 7. So first, I will read Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. 
And here ends the Old Testament reading for Sunday, October the 4th. So, as we get into this, um, I think it's fairly easy for, for, script, for those who read this portion of Scripture, especially if you've been in Scripture before, to kind of start to have assumptions, and, and proper assumptions, albeit, of kind of where this Scripture reading is going and what its theme or what its really message, the thrust of the, the Scripture is. But before we get into that, let's just make sure we spend plenty of time in the context and in just in the literal um, description that we're given from God's Word. So one, we look at the context, right? Context is always key. You'll hear me say that over and over because I can't count how many seminary professors I had who taught me that as well, which is good and right. So the context here is we're in the book of Isaiah and it's only chapter five. So not too far into the book of Isaiah. And if you think about it, chapter one, um, really it just, the chapter one introduced the the reader to the book as a whole, uh, um, not to be just overly generic, but really reduces or introduces the whole um, book. Then chapters two through four um, really kind of lays out. And one commentator, I love the word that he used. It says laid bare, laid out this enormous conflict between what Israel was called to be and what in fact Israel was. And that's going to be really key as we get into chapter 5, as our reading is for for this this, uh, study today, that there's this concept of God had had called his people to be something, to be his people, to be chosen for him, to be set apart, right? The word holy is really all about being set apart. So he called his people to be his people, to be different from the rest of the nations. And yet that's not the reality of everything that happened. And especially if, you, if you've been in Scripture before for, for many years, for some of you who are listening, you're aware, right? Israel was unfaithful in the unfaithfulness of Israel and the people. Um, and we don't want to downplay that. We also don't want to overplay it. But the reality is, is God called them to be his people, to bear fruit for him. And that's not what's happening. But I don't want to get ahead of myself too much. So we get into chapter 5 and really have, uh, as far as the language and the style language, it's, it's, it's parable. It's really a pretty fair way of describing it. Um, and when we get into parables, right, uh, we don't often see as many parables uh, usually in our Old Testament lessons. You Mostly when you hear the word parable, you think more of New Testament with Jesus teaching in parables. Because that is typically how Jesus, uh, or not typically, but one of the common ways in which Jesus taught. And actually we'll see that in the gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 21. But here, it's, it's very similar. It's similar, essentially, a parable, a type of teaching. And whenever you have parable or this type of literature, you want to be careful in Scripture not to allegorize and just try to too perfectly fit everything um, in the passage to something in real life. Now, as we'll see, God himself, in his word, through the prophet Isaiah, at the end of our reading, Mary clearly says, this, is, this, is, this uh, one thing represents God, and this represents his people, and this is what they're doing. So there is a direct correlation. We can see that. But I really want to just emphasize that we want to be careful not to just draw it a too direct correlation, especially from this into our lives, and, and make that very allegorical um, interpretation of a parable from the Old Testament into our lives. So just to be careful, something to caution. Um, and the other, the other context I, I think is really important to consider with this uh, is this parable or, or this, this reading as we have here in chapter 5 is it's spoken at the Feast of Booths. Booths being B-O-O-T-H-S, right? A historical uh, feast during the Old Testament times. Um, and that was generally a feast when Israel, the people of God, celebrated God's blessings of the harvest. 
Now, I'm not going to get into it right now, but if you want to write it down and look for it later um, as you continue to study God's Word, Leviticus chapter 23 Verses 34 through 43 gets a little bit more at this uh, discussion, Feast of Booths and the, the Blessings of the Harvest. Excuse me. And also Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. That gets into it as well. But for our context, I really just want to take, because I want to get more into the actual verses that we have today. Um, for our context, you think about the fact that if this is spoken during the time in which Israel is supposed to be celebrating the Blessings of the Harvest... Keep that in mind as then we have, as we've already heard once, but the strong language of the harvest, and the harvest isn't yielding what it's supposed to be yielding. And as we'll talk about how when God comes to his people and what should he, in uh, metaphorical language, harvest or be um, receiving or seeing in his people is not a bountiful, beautiful, pleasant harvest, if you will. But um, I don't want to get too far into that either. So, looking at this, verse 1, we kind of have a breakdown here. It's, uh, uh, there's a couple different ways to take it, but um, one, the, you can look at it in four main sections as kind of the simplest way of looking at it. Verses 1 and 2 describes the setting. Then 3 and 4 ask the hearers, those who are hearing this word, for a verdict. Then 5 and 6 announces the owner's decision. And then 7 makes this very specific application of this, um, this, this um, story, this parable, to the people. But if we look at verse 1, he says, it says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Now, I don't know about you, but in reading the latter verses, when it talks about the destruction and the judgment right to come, it doesn't sound much like a love song. Um, but in a way, it can be right because, and one, it says so. Not all commentators agree that this is a very, uh, that this is a love song because it doesn't, that tone doesn't match with the later, the, the latter verses of this section. Um, but in a way it, it can and is fitting because it says, you know, my beloved, which is a really kind of a reference to God, had a vineyard, which is referencing to, um, to Israel, to his people. And so uh, you got the prophet, let me sing for my beloved, the, my love song concerning his vineyard. And, and so it, it should be, right? The the relationship between God and his people should be a love song, right? The fact that he is joined with his people in beautiful um, commitment and dedication and sacrifice um, and care, and which is where we get to the word love, um, not the love in the um, sense that we see all too often, right, in, in the world or society or um, those types of things. But true love is that care, that dedication, that concern, um, that protection for um the one who receives love. So we get into this um, and we get to verse two um, and verse two is really where we dig into this, this imagery. Um, and so I, I just encourage you um, to maybe uh, just to keep reading through this and maybe, you know, as you, as you hear some of it, close your eyes and just trying to imagine it. Or as you read it, maybe if you're artistic, draw it out. Cause it's really interesting. It's just very, uh, it's very descriptive here, right? So it says my beloved had a vineyard and the verse one on a very fertile hill. So really, um, this, this phrase, very fertile hill, is, is talking about this, uh, this area, this geographical region, um, would be in super abundance of fertility. Best place you could have, right? If you talk about the best soil that there ever is, ever would be, it's right here. And, and the key point about that is that this vineyard is positioned, and that's a key word here, is positioned for maximum productivity, 
So God being, right, the one over the vineyard, he has the vineyard. He plants his vineyard and, or he positions his vineyard to have maximum productivity. But again, I don't want to get my head self. So you got this owner and the owner has a vineyard in the best soil he could have. And then it goes on, verse 2. He dug it. He gets out the stones. He planted it with choice vines. Choice vines would have been um, cultivated vines that are known to produce excellent fruit. So again, this vineyard is positioned for maximum productivity. And then it goes on and it says, and he built a watchtower in the midst of it, right? The watchtower to watch for literally any danger, any predator or any other person or any type of destruction that could possibly come in and and destroy the, the crops. So it was protected. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. Wine vat being the fact that right there in this vineyard is a wine vat. So that is to say that there's anticipation that there would be a good harvest. It's not like, okay, well, maybe we'll get some grapes and and we'll be okay, but that there's going to be a good harvest so much so that we got wine vat right here in the vineyard. So if you just pause there and think about it, everything about this vineyard has been positioned for maximum productivity. Everything's been given to it that it needs and not just that it needs, but it needs to have true productivity and produce and have good harvest and produce the wine down the road, right? It's in its best possible position, given everything it needs. And yet it says at the end of verse two, but it yielded wild grapes, which is to say inferior fruit. It's not good fruit, fruit that does not reflect the effort of the beloved, of the one owning the the, the um, vineyard, right? And so, a couple of things to think about here is, one, as I said, I think it's very vivid, very descriptive. So even today, we can really, we can picture this. But also, again, think about the original context. Um, for a society that was much more centered around agriculture, again, being the, the whole way of life and dependency, this type of, of imagery would very much resonate with the people. They're very familiar with it. They understand it. Uh, it would really hit home, if you will. Uh, and, and again, too, that this, this opening of this passage is going to catch the ear because it's got such vivid details. So, like, right, we haven't even gotten to the condemnation part. We'll get there. You kind of know it's coming because I've alluded to it and we've read the whole section. But let's just set, stop for a second. If you haven't read verses 3 and following, you just had this beautiful song talking about the beloved and his vineyard. And how he does everything to do he can to care for his vineyard, to make his vineyard succeed and produce. So if you're just hearing this for the first time, you're drawn in, right? This is beautiful. This is wonderful. This is good. You're sucked into the story in a good way, right? Because he's catching your attention. Um, and then you get this realistic, also emotional situation described at the end. So you're, all, you're, you're caught up in it. And like at the end of verse 2, but wait, it yielded wild grapes, What's going on with that? Why is that happening? That doesn't seem right. All it was given everything it needed. It was positioned every proper way. It was given what it needed to succeed and to produce to the maximum capacity. And yet, what? There's wild grapes? Doesn't make sense. Right? So then it doesn't. The temple of God, and especially when we get in this section, right? God is using the style of writing um, for his people to realize their own fault. So he wants to use this parable, this way of speaking, to allow them to deduce from this teaching that he's actually speaking about them. Now, if you also want to write down, maybe it's familiar to, to you, but 2 Samuel chapter 12, 
the first seven verses. Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly well-known portion of scripture, but it's when Nathan goes to King David and Nathan convicts David of his actions, right? David is, you've got the, which I always wonder, right? So David and Bathsheba is one of the most well-known uh, Bible stories and it's depicted in children's Bibles, but I've always wondered, right? It's not exactly a children's story. It's not exactly G-rated, but anyways, so it's a well-known story, and David's got these sins, he's got all this stuff in his life, and yet he doesn't really, he's not even recognizing his own sin, and Nathan comes to him, and, and in, a, in a roundabout way, allows David to realize, wait, I'm the man, I'm the one who's sinned, I'm the one you're talking about. So if you want to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12 to look more at that account. point is, this is a similar way that God, God teaches, and God convicts his people of their sin. Could God come right out and say, yeah. He could. He's God. He has every right to do so. Uh, they deserve it. But he's coming in a different way. And if you think about it in our, our lives too, right, it's sometimes, the, and sometimes it's not the most productive way to just come right out at someone and say, hey, you're wrong or that's bad, um, especially, especially you know, to someone who's still stuck in their wrong or stuck in the bad, right? They're not going to want to admit it. They don't want to, to own up to that. And that's just really our own sinful flesh, right? We don't want to admit that, admit we all, we, we've done something wrong. So sometimes it's more productive to come in a, um, not a sneaky way, but a less direct, less um, confronting way about it, if you will. Probably not my most proper English that I've ever used, but... Hopefully the point is clear. So we go on in verse 3 through 7, uh, really kind of 3 through 6, but you have this indictment on the people. Okay, so uh, God said, look at verses 3 through 7. It's not good, right? So verse 3 is interesting because God turns it on them. He says, okay, well, let you, uh, you know, why don't you judge between me and my vineyard? Let you decide what is going on here. What's wrong, right? Verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? Ouch, right? I mean, that's a stinging statement if you think about it. God's like, what else could I have done? I've done everything. And it's true. Very convicting if you really, when you really hear about it um, and take it to heart. When I look for yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? goes on in verse 5 through 6 to describe the terrible destruction. And this is the reality that to the people who were unfaithful, uh, God did everything he could. He positioned them. So again, it, when we get to a section of scripture like this, it's important to consider that when we see God's judgment and we see what he allows to happen to his people, he's a God who cares. And he doesn't just willy-nilly just allow things to happen. And it's not like he has a short fuse either. I mean, his people had been time and time again unfaithful, right? But he gets to the point, as he says through this prophet, that it's like, nope. I've, you've been unfaithful. I've positioned you. I've given you everything you could to succeed. I've given you, I've put you in the right spot so that you could be faithful to you have what you need to follow me, you know, and they still didn't. And so it's serious. Consequences are terribly serious. Verse five through six, right? Uh, I will remove its hedge. It'll be devoured, break down the wall. So now it's a lot, any damage is allowed in. It'll be trampled down. It's going to make it a waste. It won't be pruned or hoed. Briars and thorns, the worst kinds of the weeds, will come into it. And even at the end of it, there will be no rain, commanding that no rain come upon it. And who alone can control the rain but God himself? But point is, is so now these crops, literally, they're exposed to everything else. They're trampled down. They're devoured. There's weeds choking it out. There's no rain. It's terrible judgment. And verse 7 is the fact that 
Um, now God brings it real home, real direct, and says, I'm talking about you, right? Vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So again, he looks for one thing, for good fruit, and there's, there's wild grapes. He looks for justice, but there's bloodshed. There's these injustices that the people were doing that existed in the land, in the people of Israel. He looked for righteousness, there's outcry. People ignoring the cries of those being um, trampled and, and persecuted. And so he's looking for one, for the fruit of his people, and yet he sees something completely different and contrary. And so if by now, at this part of hearing the word, the people hadn't realized he was talking about them, he's going to make it clear. I'm talking about you, right? And sometimes it gets to that point. Sometimes in our lives too, you have that roundabout way. Someone tries to tell you something and you're just not getting it. You're not getting it. Finally, I say, it's you. This is the problem. Here's the issue, right? Just call it directly out. So, as we look at this, um, and due to time, I want to make sure I have time for the other readings as well. But we just we can see a lot in here. I think I've tried to make some connections along the way. But a couple other things to, to just consider is the fact that, so then in our own life, right? Is it not true that God positions us to produce fruit? Right? He gives us his word. He gives us his sacrament. He gives us a community of believers. He gives us uh, his grace and mercy every day. I mean, I could go on, right? He gives us everything that we need, and He gives us things for this body and life as well. And so, for lack of better terms, we are positioned to produce fruit, to, to show faithfulness to Him. And I want to be careful, too, you know, when you hear that word fruit, oftentimes you think of in, in, this, um, in scriptural discussions, right, especially if you've been in scriptures before, right, uh, fruit and compared to good works. Now, of course, right, good works are part of it, but also, it's not just saying that you have to be perfect or else God's going to say your, your wild grapes off with you. No. But rather, uh, I mean, good fruit could also be referred to as repentance. This is, and I think actually in a way, this is really what God's looking for. This is, the, the good fruit would have been a people who's repentant at this point. Because they were unfaithful. He knows that. And he, he doesn't want to cast them out. He doesn't want to have punishment. He doesn't want to have exile. And repentance would bring that. So, think about in our own lives, right? Is there... How can we look to our own lives and reflect on the fact that maybe I have yielded wild grapes? Maybe I haven't been faithful to God. Where can I, where can I um, clean that out of my life and turn to God? Um, so I think that's enough for Isaiah chapter 5. If you see, uh, you know, commentators write much more. So there's more to study about it, but hopefully enough for this discussion and for your own study at home. So I actually want to switch. I want to skip over the epistle for a moment just because the gospel reading for our Sunday, October 4th is very closely connected. So let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. The gospel reading for Sunday, October 4th is Matthew 21 verses 33 through 46. I'll read that for us. Jesus said, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. 
And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they had they held him to be a prophet. Here ends the gospel reading for next Sunday. So I would assume, having re- reading this right after Isaiah, that you're starting to make some connections in your head or thinking, oh, this is connected, it's very similar. And it is but I want to be careful about it because we're going to draw some distinctions. Before we get into this parable and talk about the connections and the deeper, um, just deeper nature of the scripture, look at the context, right? So we're in, well, this is the reading for October. So September, October, and here we are at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. So we're getting close, as far as the Gospel of Matthew goes, close to the death of Jesus. Matthew chapter 21, our reading here, verse 33, it follows Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, what we, you know, typically talk about as Palm Sunday. So if that position, I want to use that to position our minds, right? So you've got the fact that he's coming into Jerusalem, this is Palm Sunday, and he's teaching. Um, Because then after he enters, you have, um, in verse 12, Jesus cleanses the temple. And then in in the following sections, in verse 18 and 23 and 28, those different sections, um, as as kind of delineated by our study Bibles, right? But in those sections, different teachings. And Jesus is teaching um, in in the temple. And especially in the, he's teaching about his authority. Um, And then we have this, this parable that he gives of the two sons right before our reading. The parable that of the two sons, he's teaching that no repentant sinner is ever turned away which is something important to consider, right? Again, we have this word repentance, but it's not in our reading. So then we get to verse 33 through 46, and again, we have a parable. As I said last time with Old Testament, you know, we want to be careful not to over-allegorize or anything with the parable. And remember, just remember, like parable, parables take these real-life experiences to teach the real-life truth that's applied in our lives today. They kind of put things side by side. So we want to be careful not to f- say, well, there's an exact match, but oftentimes we can see when you put these two things side by side um, how Jesus is teaching and making these truths clear about what he has to teach. So here we get into the, get into the distinction, right? This parable in Matthew chapter 21 is very similar to the one in Isaiah, right? Both talking about a vineyard and everything that's going on. Um, but in Matthew 21, the, the hearers, the people originally this was directed to, are really the religious leaders of Israel. Okay? Now, of course, God's Word, we can read it and we can hear things. It speaks to us every time we read God's Word. Um, but 
it's a rather harsh parable when you really consider what's being said and, and the, the judgment that comes. So we have to also be sure to consider it in its first original context. So we don't just take this and, and think, well, this is me, right? Because we got to be careful about that. So we see, again, we have this parable. There's a master of the house, planted a vineyard in verse 33, put out a fence around it, a wine press, built a tower, leased it to tenants. That's kind of about where we have the main overlap. So we, again, have God's this landowner, and we've got God's people being the vineyard. But here's where we get into this different. We have these tenants who can be kind of compared to uh, the unbelieving religious leaders, those, especially the religious leaders who are opposing Jesus. But I skipped over a word there. Verse 33 it begins by saying, hear another parable. And that word hear, which for us might be, okay, great. Listen, you know, he's just saying hear, listen. But it's significant because to hear, he doesn't mean just, you know, take it in. He again means to truly take it in with your ears and to inwardly digest it, to truly hear, to listen to what I'm saying. And the problem is, is especially at this time to, to those who he's primarily speaking, but to many others, they had heard Jesus. They'd heard Jesus before, but they didn't really understand what he was saying. They didn't believe him, and, and they didn't believe the truth that he was revealing or teaching about. And in this case, you could it could be argued, as uh, one commentator put it, that the hear is actually hear, repent, and believe. All that packed in one little word. Again, that could be taken too far, but I think there, there's reason, reasonable... Uh, Assumptions can be made about that to say that he wants us to not only just take it in with our ears, but to to repent of our own ways and to believe in him. So we get into this parable, and I was reading the commentary by Dr. Matthew Gibbs, uh, so writing the CPH commentary on on Matthew. And it's interesting, he uses this word that to describe this parable as a whole, that it's just a strange parable, that it's strange. Um, and really, it is, if you consider it, right? Because looking at these details, you see the fact that this, it's not what would typically happen, right? So in verse 34, the season of her fruit drew near, which means it's time for a harvest. And he sent, the owner sends his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. So that's all logical, right? It's logical that at the harvest time, when the season of fruit draw near, Owner sends his servants, go to his field, work the field, harvest it, and, and, and that's what you would do. It's the logical thing to happen. But what's strange is then what happens in verse 35. The tenants took the servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. It's strange. It really, really is. It also goes on, uh, Dr. Gibbs goes on to say how it's strange because then hate in somewhat is considered apparently a hasty manner. Another one sent to them. Um, I, I'm not sure I struggle. Like, I don't know how we know necessarily it's hasty. It just says he sends, sends other ones. Um, and then it says again that he sends his son. He thinks they'll respect them and yet they kill the son. So it is strange. It's like, what is going on? Why is all this happening? And when we consider how it, how strange it is, which I, I do appreciate the way Dr. Gibbs gets at, gets at that is that with parables, especially, right, they're, they're not always very true to life. And they're not always that way so that he can teach and reveal something to confront the hearers, those who are listening to his parable. And so that's where, again, we want to be careful that we don't allegorize or overanalyze this parable and try to draw all these little direct co correlations to every single little thing because this is strange. 
It doesn't perfectly apply. It shouldn't. Um, but that's helping Jesus make a point. Jesus teach something. Jesus to highlight the, um, well, just to jump ahead, to highlight the rejection that the religious leaders had for him as the truth and the one who had come. To highlight the rejection that the, that the people had, the religious leaders had for the prophets who came time and time again, who shared God's word. And the, to highlight the harshness of which people react to the word when they don't want to hear it. So, it sounds a little bit strange, and it, and it is, um, but strange for a reason, which I guess that's fair for, to say about Jesus, right? Jesus is strange, but strange for a reason. I'm not sure that would uh, work. But anyways, going on, verse 35 talks about that they stoned him. Just to highlight this, that stoning was a method of punishment uh, used for a variety of religious infractions in the ancient Israel. So all that to say is essentially a common way of punishing religious um, crimes, if you will. So he sends other servants, which I, I kind of alluded to and mentioned very briefly, but we got the fact that the, the landowner, we talk about sending his servants to his tenants. Uh, so when you think about it, if it, how we can use this to think about the real life experiences that happen in the history of God's people is God's in control of everything. He's the owner, he's the creator, and he's over his people, but you know he's got people in place. He's got these tenants. He's got these different religious leaders. These other people who've who've risen to essentially um, authorities or positions of power, but they were corrupt. They were doing things wrong. They were rejecting God at times. Right? You can see that all throughout the history of God's people. Just read through the Bible. But time and time again, God sends servants to them. Servants being prophets. Right? Especially if you go through the, the prophets, you can see how many times the prophets were rejected by the religious leaders, rejected by the people of God. And not just, oh, we don't want what you got, what you're selling. No, but it's horrible rejection, terrible violence to these prophets. Time was when the prophets' lives were literally in jeopardy. Uh, so, this is where we can see the, the real life experience of how, it play, how this parable applies to the history of God's people. So then you get to verse 37. And of course, you can see the correlation we talk about. The master sends his own son. And this can, of course, be, we, we use to talk about with Jesus because uh, the master's son should have received the highest respect. And yet here comes Jesus into this world in the flesh. Of course, he should receive the highest respect. He is God. He is the word. And that makes me think of a side note, a side doctrinal teaching we can use to consider here. If we talk about that God continually sent servants into the world to the leaders of the time to share the word of God as prophets, Jesus is what's, Jesus holds what is referred to as the office of the prophet, the great prophet. So in, in doctrinally, we can talk about the fact that Jesus, as Christ, has a threefold office. There are threefold offices of Christ. They are prophet, priest, and king. And so we know prophets are the ones who particularly, um, the main thrust of a prophet is to share the word of God. The main focus of a priest is, is the sacrifice, the interceding between the people and God. And then the king is to protect and, and provide to guard God's people. And in every one of those instances, each one of those offices, we, talk, we use those to describe Christ as anointed to be the high priest, the high prophet, the, the great king, because he doesn't just bring the word of God. He is the word of God. He doesn't just intercede for the people. He literally gave his life and intercedes in a way that no one ever could. And same thing with king. He rules and reigns not over on a throne on earth, but over heaven and earth forever and ever with omnipotence. 
So I don't want to go down too far on a trail on that. But here we have that Jesus is that he's the great prophet, the high prophet who came and fulfilled all roles even more. And what happened to him? He's rejected. And he says in verse 42, again, this is striking. He says, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now this, in many Bibles, is indented because it's very clearly a quote. Uh, it's a quote from Psalm 118. But I think what I said just a moment ago is there's quite a dig in here. Jesus says, have you never read? Again, if he's talking to the religious leaders, which he is, of course they've read this. They're the religious leaders. They should have read this multiple times. So he's like, haven't you read it? He knows they've read it. And of course they read it. And yet they've never read it in light of Jesus, seeing that Jesus is this cornerstone and he's the one who's there rejecting. So go on. And verse 43 says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And here fruits, again, isn't just good works, but its fruits are those who remain in Jesus, who obey his commands, who trust him, who believe in him, who, who turn to him. And what is the reward, the blessing, the benefit that they get? As it says there in the first half of 43, the kingdom of God will be theirs. Because it says the kingdom of God will be taken away from those and instead given to a people who, um, who bear its fruits. And the kingdom of God is a way to say the blessings, the salvation, everything that Jesus brings. What Jesus has to offer, what Jesus brings into this world, the life, the grace, the mercy, the salvation, that's the kingdom of God. And those who bear its fruits, as it says, or produce fruits in this context, remain in him, listen to him, they receive that. And it's not a works righteousness thing. It's, it's simple because, again, one of those is, is repentance. And that's the theme I think we can also see through this week. So, again, a rather harsh uh, judgment, if you will, punishment for these leaders. Terribly harsh, in fact. But again, it's not like Jesus just says this kind of thing willy-nilly. It's not like he hadn't come to them. He hadn't sent people to them. And it's not, in no way does he delight in such a terrible judgment, uh, punishment. But it's just the reality of those who continually reject and those who reject Jesus Christ. It is, it is terrible. So with that, I guess that makes me also think the, the typical thing, right? You have some of you listening may have people in your life you think of, you know, might, unfo- might even uh, be in your own family. And so unfortunately, you're thinking about the terribly serious nature of, you know, what could happen to them? You know, what, what will they receive? Will they receive the kingdom of heaven? And I guess to comfort, not to be an escape, but to comfort, to know, again, this isn't our place to judge. We're not God. God's the one who knows hearts. Uh, but we are the ones to do what we can, what we've been sent to do. So when we have those chances, we share his word. We live a life for Christ, which we'll talk about second from Philippians. And we just pray that the Lord would use us. We don't want to overburden ourselves and think that, you know, it's just us who brings them to faith. But may God use us? Maybe. Right, And a lot of times we have no clue how God's using us. Uh, so especially if, if there is someone in your family uh, that you are concerned about, especially or a friend or, or whomever it might be, just keep praying for them. And know, yeah, it's, it's terribly scary to think of what would happen if they don't have faith. But just trust and know in God, uh, your God who's a loving God who desires all to be with him. So I know that's not the main focus of this passage. 
But I do think it it can't go without being said because when you hear these types of statements in scripture, like well, they'll they won't uh, the kingdom of God will be taken away from them. That's pretty strong, um, and so we have to kind of address that a little bit. So again, in this section, you see the fact that Jesus teaches in a way that allows the people to really convict themselves. Right? He starts off with this parable. He teaches this parable. He kind of brings it in. He then quotes Psalm 118, like, oh, haven't you read it? Kind of um, just playing it down. And then finally, he calls him out in verse 43 and following. and says, like, this is what it is. Uh, so, again, a very powerful way to teach for God's word to convict those who hear it. And now just to kind of wrap up the section as we move on to the epistle. I said, remember, there's a, diff- there's a difference between Isaiah and Matthew. Isaiah chapter 5 the problem, if you will, lies within the vineyard. The unfaithfulness is within the vineyard, and the vineyard there represents the people of God. So the problem in Isaiah 5 is that the people of God, really the, the whole, the, the people are unfaithful. But in Matthew 21, really the problem, the unfaithfulness, if you will, the rejection, is really with the ones who are entrusted with the oversight of the vineyard, the religious leaders of the time. Uh, and so there, there is a slight difference. So we want to be careful not to just take Matthew 21 and think, oh, this is about everybody. Again, can it apply to us? Yes. Do we need to be cautious of this? Yes. But in, especially in that time, there's more direct, original direct application to the religious leaders, uh, whereas Isaiah is going to really just clearly hit with the whole people of God first. So... Take a, I'm going to take a breather and let that sink in. It's still challenging doing these recorded because I would love to have more questions and, and back and forth and, and pauses for, for you all. But at least we get to be in God's Word. So we have one more lesson to look at. Before we finish our time here, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3. So the epistle lesson for Sunday, October 4th is from Philippians chapter 3. Turn there in our Bibles. And in the lectionary, it's written as Philippians chapter 3, verse 4b through 14. Just a side note, in case you weren't aware, when it says 4b, it's just dividing the verse. When A and B divides the verse based on the portion, so like A, first half, B, second half, um, I'll never forget, and I don't honestly remember who it was, um, so I, I'm not trying to be ill towards anyone because uh, I don't even know who it was, but I always heard I heard one seminary professor say, you know, it always got to be suspect of why it says B, what's going on in A, and I think he was saying that in jest too. So again, be careful. I'm not saying anything wrong. The people who put the lectionary together have great reasons. A lot of times there's a, there's a B in there because that's really where the next thought starts, and again, these verse markings aren't, we shouldn't just be dictated by verse markings. Just really read the words and the scripture that's given to us. So I'm not saying be subject of this reading today, but it, it actually does make sense to start kind of where we're at. And plus it starts at a brand new sentence. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 through 14. And again, Paul, Paul writes Philippians. So think of as this, this is word coming from the pen of Paul. So Paul writes, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And here ends our epistle reading for Sunday, October 4. Again, I would argue that this is a fairly familiar passage for those who've been in the church for a while, but it doesn't really matter. So we get at this uh, Philippians chapter 3. It says, if anyone thinks they've got reason to, for confidence, I have more. Right? He's like, if you think you can boast, check out what I, I've got to boast about. Right? He goes on this list. He says he's circumcised on the eighth day. Again, um, just a scripture reference for you to turn to as, as your own study. I would encourage you to do this. But go to Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 12. And in that section, goes all the way back to the fact that circumcision was a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. God made a covenant with, with Abraham, a promise that um, essentially making them him his people and the blessings that would come to Abraham and his descendants and to God's people. And so, as a sign of that covenant, there's circumcision. And it's, it just says that on the eighth day that, that they are to be uh, circumcised. So, he said, basically, by this claim, he's saying, I'm part of this. I'm part of the covenant. And I've, I've got it. Like, I, I've actually done what is said to be done to be part of God's people. Then he goes on to say, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, which is a tribe from which King Saul came. Very respectable lineage. Then he goes to say, I'm Hebrew of Hebrews, as if to say that he's the most Hebrew of all, right? He's the best of the best. Like if, if it's considered that's the best um, lineage to come from, he's the best. Then he says, I'm a Pharisee, right? Now, especially if we come off of Matthew, we see oftentimes in scripture, in the gospels, the Pharisees are um, criticized. But at this time, he's saying this is a great boast for him because in the past, a Pharisee is considered uh, to be the most zealous of the Jews, right? So the Jews and the, the following the laws of God and the Pharisees became this group that essentially at times even created more laws to ensure they kept the laws of God and they're the most zealous. And then Paul goes to say, I'm the, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. This one sounds strange, but this is where I think we got to be careful with Paul. A lot of times Paul, formerly known as Saul, Saul gets such a terrible rap. I'm not saying that he should be... Um, lifted up in any way for the persecution he did, by no means. But when, when Saul was persecuting the church, he was doing so out of a zeal for God. The fact that he believed he was trying to be a good follower of God by persecuting those who were not following the laws of God. Now again, I am not condoning that by any means, but I do think sometimes we overlook the fact that it's not like he was just possessed or some terrible evil being was he doing bad things yes by means no means should he persecute i'm not saying the persecution is good but again it's it comes out of this twisted motivation and if you think about it isn't that the best thing for the devil to do take a good motivation and, and get it twisted twist it just a little bit 
something to think about. But so again, he uses this as a reason to boast. And the last thing he says, blameless. And really that's mostly often thought as in respect to keeping these laws that were really prescribed by the, the Pharisees. So he's saying, you think you've got something to boast about? Check out what I've got. I've got this long list. I am, I have the most to boast about. You've got nothing to compare to me. He says, all that boasting, everything I gained, verse 7, whatever I gained, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's strong. He gained all of that. He had all that to boast about. He spent his life doing that. Those were, that was part of it. All that gain is loss for the sake of Christ. All that knowledge, that lineage, that notoriety he had, it actually interfered with knowing God, with truly hearing the truth, hearing that Jesus and the message and the, and the real truth that God has. All of that got in the way. I think, you know, you can see where we're going with this, but right, that this early stuff, it can get in the way. And, and you think about it, oh, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'll hold off on that. So, uh, verse, then we go, and he counts it all for loss. Um, verse 10 and 11 talks about the fact that he's really living a real life of faith rooted in the death and resurrection that was, that was won for him. It says, verse 10, that by his power of resurrection, I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So it's not like he just wants to say, yeah, I'm saved, I'm for Jesus, right? But he wants to live in that, live in Christ every day. To share in his sufferings. That's a strong statement. To say that Christ, those who persecute, those who follow Christ, that that's what he's going to do. He's going to share in that. Because that's what it means to live for Christ. Real quick segue to our lives today, right? To say that we're baptized Christians, do we really live it out? Do we live as if we've been crucified and resurrected with Jesus Christ? As if those other things are truly lost and we live for him? that we, we've, we suffer with him, we, we find those things. That's what it means to live this baptismal life out. And this is what he's saying. He's that by any means possible, I attain the resurrection from the, from the dead. That's what's all so important. He says, verse 12, Not that I've already made, obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Right? Christ obtained Paul. That's, you know, it was God's work. God saved him. But that he makes it his own. And this is what I think is really important and really speaks to us today is, you know, Paul says, well, I want to make this my own. This is my faith. This is what Christ has done for me. God has made me his, but now I want to also personally espouse this to truly be mine. Think about that in our lives, right? Do we really say this is my own? This is mine? You know, if we do, what does that mean? How, what the, how does that change your life? Because I also don't want to be too law-based on you, right? I'm not saying, I don't want to say that all of you listening aren't making it your own. That's not what I'm saying. Some of us maybe aren't. And so maybe we need to be convicted of that. But some of us, you are. You make Christ your life every single day. So think about what joy, what comfort, what strength that gives you. That you could say, yeah, because Christ is mine and I've been made his, that changes my life. And that's the real, real last um, large segment I want to I consider is this. Look at what Paul's saying here in these few verses, you know, 11 verses or so. Because... Because of Christ, his entire perspective on things has been changed, right? His perspective on his former life has changed. He used to boast in all those things. Now he says, that's rubbish. It's loss. His current life has changed because of Christ. 
his current life, as he writes the Philippians, right? Many times um, he's suffered. Many times he's persecuted. Many times he's not trusted. Many times um, he's run out of towns. But it's changed because of Christ. He has hope. He has joy. And then, of course, he, his life has changed from the future for Christ. Or because of Christ, I mean. Because he has the resurrection from the dead. That's what he has to look forward to. That's the hope he has. And so even should he suffer, should he die, he has that resurrection. And so that, I think, is really, to me, what sticks out, especially at least this time reading through it, is that because what Christ has done, because Christ has made Paul his own, his whole perspective has been changed. Everything has changed, and especially this whole boasting. Uh, I did want to say one thing about this, right? So he changes on the fact that he doesn't boast in these earthly things. He doesn't count these earthly things as, as uh, he counts them all as loss, as rubbish. I do want to be careful here, especially because depending on who's listening, especially in our, our younger years, you know, we value sports or music or things in school. And as we get older, right, there's still those things in our life we value, and we all have different skills and gifts. And there's a difference between boasting and also uh, recognizing the blessing that you've been given. The recognizing the, um, if you will, the treasure that, that is within you, the treasure that God has given you. The fact is, is that God has blessed every single one of you. You all have something, some skills, some gifts, some talents, and it's okay to hold on to those. I was actually recently doing a um, leadership discussion or I was listening to one of our, our members uh, lead a leadership training for our youth. We have a youth leadership team that we're just starting. But anyways, she was doing this, uh, de- sharing this devotion that talks about the fact that in order to be better, stronger leaders in everything, not just in the church, but anything, we need to recognize those strengths, those treasures within inside of us. Recognize and say, yeah, God's made me a good basketball player. God has made me good at speaking to other people. God has made, you know, recognize it and and know that it comes from God because that makes us better leaders. That helps us rejoice in what we've been given. But that is very far different from from boasting. And that's what Paul was doing, right? Paul was boasting. He was holding up over others. He was saying he's better than others. So those are different, but at the same time, they can become uh, convoluted for some as you, you think about these things. So it's not to say that the earthly is just terrible and do away with the earthly. We still live in the world. And we are still people, but we can't hold that over our life in Christ. And we need to see all of that transformed, all of that perspective changed because of Christ. So as our time comes to a close, um, blessed to be here and study God's word with you. And I just before we go, would like to close with a word of prayer. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for time in your word. Thank you for my brothers and sisters of Christ, of whom I don't even know who are listening to this, Lord, but you join us together. We are yours and we are united together through time and through space. And so, Lord, may you bless them and you bless myself as we continue to be in your word, that your word speaks to us each and every day. So may you strengthen us in faith and sharing that faith with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.